Hello and welcome to the menu, Monocle Radio's food and drink program. I am Markus Hippi. This week we recap many highlights from the past 11 years of the menu. Our guests include Martha Stewart. I want to have it in my most beautiful house in Maine. And I want Weizu-san cooking there. And I want the champagne maker there too. Here in the UK we hear from Nigella Lawson. I'm one of those people that if I've read a book I liked, I sort of badger people with it. If I'm eating a, some food I like, I'll stick a fork in someone's face until they have to eat some. Jamie Oliver will also appear in the programme and will head to Switzerland to track down the roots of muesli. All that here on The Menu on Monocle Radio. And for this special edition of the program, I'm also joined by Tom Edwards, Monocle's head of radio. Hello, Tom. Hello, Marcus Hippie. Hang on a second. What's all this special episode? Marcus, I think this cat is firmly out of the bag, as we say here in the UK. But tell our soon-to-be-distraught listeners, what is so special about this particular episode mm, of the programme? I think some of our listeners may know already that by the time this programme airs, I can actually for the first time reveal this is a pre-recorded show this time round. <laughs> I have already left Monocle. I have moved on to the world of diplomacy. You can find me sometimes at the Finnish Embassy in London. In any case, we'll be talking about the future of this programme with you, Tom, shortly. We'll be recapping many highlights. But basically, this is a moment to stop and reflect all the things we have been doing over the past... 12 years. Well, this is it, Marcus. It's been an amazing journey. And I've, well, I've been walking kind of alongside you on that journey for most of it, although you were here even before your superannuated colleague, Tom Edwards. I think what's interesting, though, is not just obviously the amazing uh, places that you and I and Monaco have been together, but even if we talk about food and drink specifically, incredible. We've seen trends a whole, you know, new vogueish ways of eating and drinking. Come, go, come back again. Um, that must be really incredible to look back at over a decade, all of these different things that have happened. Absolutely. We've seen so much over the years, and, and I think we should be talking about some of those key trends in just a moment. But Tom, shall we continue with one highlight straight away? It's actually quite a current highlight, actually, because British food writer, author and broadcaster Nigella Lawson is celebrating 25 years since the release of her debut cookbook, How to eat this year and obviously she's been someone who kind of kick-started a massive change in the way people ate in Britain in the 1990s. Well I know we've got some other uh, kind of superstars, global stars uh, from food and drink coming up in the programme but I think for people, particularly if they're out in the UK, they'll people will be familiar with Nigella but for those outside maybe in the States I don't know how uh, well known she is. You're quite right, there's a few of these names who have really gone into the mainstream of food and changed the way people think about what is possible, particularly in their own kitchens, the way that they can source ingredients, the ambitions they can have. People like Delia Smith um, from a little longer ago. And Nigella has been a... I don't know, I'd say like kind of a generational influence on, on people in this country. Absolutely. Obviously, another figure we'll be hearing from Martha Stewart in just a moment, but staying with Nigella now. Five years ago, she was celebrating 20 years since the launch of, launch of that book, and she joined me in this very same studio to discuss what it was like to release that book, How to Eat, and whether she had any idea how successful that book would become. Let's have a listen. I had no idea. Absolutely no idea. I mean, I was still slightly surprised by the fact that I'd written it. And I think 
I regarded it in a way as quite a very personal book. And so I don't think I could see beyond that. But I, I think it's probably harmful anyway when you write to think of a readership because I think that can be quite corrupting. I was writing for myself, I was writing for my friends, I suppose, and to some extent, and, and as I explained, my mother and one of my sisters had died quite recently. My mother less recently. She died, you know, really quite young, and my sister had died in December 93. And I think part of the impetus for writing the book was really remembering not only their food, our food, I should say, but the conversations we always had. And I think for me, it was very much a way of continuing that conversation. And so I never really thought about it in terms of even other people noticing it or reading it. It's funny to say that. But even now when I write, I think it's so important not to think of readers, audience. Then you start becoming one of those people who starts thinking, what should I be doing? What's new? What's fresh? And I think really you just have to follow your, your own instincts. How do you avoid thinking about the audience? Because you are writing something, you get the feeling, okay, someone's going to be reading this. How do you get of, away from I that Because I think thought? of a reader or a person in a more intimate way. I think of someone in a kitchen cooking or reading. And what I want to say, I suppose I'm, I started off as a journalist and not incidentally a food journalist, but I have a need to communicate and to share what I think. I'm one of those people that if I've read a book I liked, I sort of badger people with it. If I'm eating a, some food I like, I'll stick a fork in someone's face until they have to eat some. And I suppose, so when I'm writing, I, yes, I'm thinking of a person, but I'm not thinking of a crowd of people. I'm probably thinking of some person I'm having the conversation with. Maybe someone who's anxious about cooking, maybe someone who I'm just trying to convey why I love this particular food, why I think this, and somehow to take away the rest of the noise around food. How do you feel about your debut cookbook now, 20 years later? Have your cooking principles, for example, changed? My cooking principles haven't. Obviously, there are certain things I feel differently about. I think, in a way, it's a very innocent book. Anything you do for the first time is because you don't know how people are going to think about it. As I say, I wasn't even conscious of having any such thought. I think there's an urgency to my appeals to people about how they should do what they should do. And although I still feel that, I suppose I temper it slightly more now. And I certainly... Well, I suppose the, the real difference is, is if you write a book... Your first book is really everything you've thought about food up till that point. It's a long time of eating and thinking about food that went into that book. I don't think I've changed at all. I think I still feel it is extraordinary, actually. There are ingredients. If we take it away from approach towards food and just what I was cooking, yes, a lot of the food is now quite old-fashioned, but some of it is old-fashioned in a way that then was no one cooked. And, for example, I lamented in How to Eat that kale was unfashionable. I mean, now you can't go to anywhere without there being kale everywhere. I also feel there were certain ingredients, miso, pomegranate seeds on food, tahini. There was certain ingredients that I was interested in that have since become much more prominent. Yes, I've changed my mind about certain things. I had enthusiasms for certain particular ingredients that maybe I don't always have. But my view about home cooking and its importance and in a way the need not to 
be too bound up with perfectionism. I, I feel very intensely still. And that book can be seen as quite a powerful statement as well. And I think you've changed the world or changed yes. the UK, at least when you look at how people eat nowadays and how people see food nowadays. When you look around, do you think that, wow, I actually did that. I actually changed the world this much. Oh, no, I don't think so. I think change comes from so many different areas and everything feeds in to something else. In my more megalomaniac moments, I might think, I did that. But then afterwards, I think, well, you know what? I didn't actually. It was just someone saying to me, this is good. You know, an mm-hmm. Egyptian friend showing me about the tahina. I called it tahina then because that's what he calls it, a tahina sauce he did with lamb. And now it is more everywhere. But actually, to be honest, it was everywhere where he came from before. So it's really exactly. pilfering and generally stealing, borrowing. I always credited where things came from, and I think that's important. I feel that if you strive for novelty, which a lot of chefs do, and I'm not a chef, when the waiter says, the chef today has done, you know, lobster with pears and vanilla, and you just think, and why? Mm -hmm. You know, it hasn't been done before. Great. And I think that when we cook at home, I think we strive for originality less, but we get new ideas and new enthusiasms. But I always like to say where I've come across a particular pairing or an ingredient or a recipe. I don't think you should ever claim to have an idea that isn't yours. And actually one gets ideas from other sources. And I think it's interesting to find out. Nigel Lawson there, one of the greatest guests I think I have had in the show. Many, many others, obviously, to come in this programme as well. Well, there's too many to count. And I think what's been so clever and skillful about your stewardship of the programme, Marcus, is we, I know at Monaco, we always say, you know, we don't do too fancy and we don't want foam, we want good, honest food. Um, But we've described the whole range. You've, of course, spoken to some of the great uh, technical chefs, the two, three Michelin starred uh, superstars of kind of real cutting edge uh, cuisine and culinary innovation, uh, but lots of down home chefs as well. Just on that point about trends, and we, we mentioned it briefly at the top, you know, you're from Finland. If you think back... Ten, Why do you look like that when you mention years? Finland? No, it's just funny. What is that look on your face? Well, well, no, think of the Nordic influence. That was kind of a new thing it's, it's if funny. we go back to the start of the 2010s. Exactly. If we talk about that era, it was funny because when I started this programme, it was the new Nordic cuisine that was a big thing and that was the hot thing, the trendy thing. At the same time, it feels so weird at the moment, but there was a craft beer boom as well. And, you know, now it's easy to think that that thing has been around forever, but that wasn't the case in 2011. Well, you have all always been very ahead of your time Marcus and I think both that Nordic well that's it's old at best it's old new Nordic cuisine now or just established everyone knows what that means even if they're not familiar uh, with some of the latest restaurants or newer uh, benchmarks and exemplars I think craft beer is the same well you remember certainly when you were a student here in the UK going a little bit further back many pubs you could go into bars Mm -hmm. they would have a some kind of dreadful session keggery going on it's pretty hard not to have a really great beer lager ipa real ale whatever it might be almost anywhere you go certainly in in london that is that has changed almost beyond recognition absolutely another thing i want to mention is that there was so much excitement about small plates at some point that is obviously a thing that's been you know it hasn't disappeared but i think we just are a a bit less enthusiastic enthusiastic about those nowadays you know what i much prefer to small plates Uh, large plates 
Yeah, I guess I'm the same. I do like small plates to a certain extent. It's nice to try different things, but I do understand that many people just don't, you know, you don't want to have many people eating from the same plate and kind of no. like, you know, you just like... Also, you can have you can have different things on a one big plate as well at the same time. Yeah, you know? or even if it's a small plate, if it just has much more on it. Mm-hmm. I don't know why this reminds me of the moment when it wasn't a plate at all. There was uh, there was a cheese shop owner who came into this office. By the way, do you remember Tom? We why did, are you telling this story? This is not one of the highlights, but uh, do you remember we had a few cheeses over there? This. We got to sample, mm-hmm. and then there were a lot of leftovers, and there was this what two kilo ball of cheese and I remember it was you basically kind of, it was kind of the whole like a thing ball. away by the end of the day yeah I just went at it and also mm. there was no knives so I went at it with a you were spooning with, with a spoon yeah I, I dealt with that I tell you I also remember when one day someone was handing out free donuts outside and how yes. many did you eat that day uh, one or two yes I think it was like 11 Anyway, let's not, let's not get sidetracked. Just just an example of, of the many memories we have <laughs> from the past years. Actually, one of the most fascinating interviews I did, I have to say, over the years was in 2014 when I was in New York City. I was there as a bureau chief for some months. And, and one of my tasks included interviewing Martha Stewart about her hypothetical last meal. Let's hear what she had to say. If I were to have a last meal, which I am not planning on having any time soon, by the way, I would definitely include a, a wonderful sushi by Weizu-san of Karuma Zushi. And I've been eating um, Weizu-san's food for 19 years, and he was on 56th Street before that. So I've been going a long time. <laughs> and what do you think, what is so special about what he does? It's all about the fish and about his lack of tolerance for inferiority. He is a perfectionist of the first order. If I take this to the very beginning, I was thinking on my way here that food brings back memories and many people can name some individual dishes that still remind them of their childhood, maybe bring this safe feeling, feeling of safety. Do you have such dishes? What, oh, were, the, what were the dishes, say, your mother prepared when you oh, were a child? I remember every single thing my mother ever cooked. Her Sunday pork roast is the best pork roast I've ever had. It's a loin of pork, white, beautiful pork. She would grate an onion on the loin, a whole onion, hand grated over the side and roast it with salt and pepper and onion. And I loved that crust so much. And then she would make a homemade applesauce with that. Very exquisite. Are there other flavors that remind you of your childhood? Oh, yeah. Her pierogi, made out of fresh cabbage, sweet cabbage. Her stuffed cabbage. Her babka. Her stugelina, which is jellied pig's feet, which is the best. Nobody makes it better than... Nobody made it better than my mom. She's not, she's not alive any longer. Those dishes your mother prepared, she also taught you to cook. Do you think you can repeat the same dishes the same way? Or oh, did she still do it better? Oh, I do. No, I make them at least as good as my mom. But... I don't have as much patience as she had. So I can't make the 300 cabbage pierogi. You know, I'll make maybe 50. But it's hard for me to make the 300. And uh, I don't know if mine tastes as good, even though they're just as good, because they don't have her around. That's the difference. Exactly. It's kind of hard to compare now. Do you remember when you first ate sushi? Yes, I do. It was uh, on a date with my husband when I was... 18 years old and there was only 
two restaurants, I think, in New York that served sushi. One was called Aki, and it's up uptown near Columbia University, and we ate there a lot, my husband-to-be. And one other one on somewhere around 57th Street, a very good Japanese restaurant on uh, 57th Street. And I don't know the name of it. I can't remember. But I had sushi there, too. But it was very unusual. In, this is in 1960 to eat sushi. Very unusual. Have you always been open-minded about different influences and different ingredients? So have you, have you been faced with anything that you have found challenging to eat? No, I've always been open-minded, but I do find things challenging. I will not eat, for example, brains of any animal. I will not eat um, certain innards. Not all. I eat some innards. I, I, I like liver, but I don't like sweetbreads. And I don't like, as I said, brains. And I don't like eyes. My mother loved eyes. She ate eyes. How did she eat them? I just ate them like um, like the eyes of fish. I won't eat. How often are you faced with situations <laughs> that someone is actually offering those to you? Well, when you go when you travel places that I've traveled, you sometimes are offered things that you just cannot believe, like bear paws. That was the worst thing I've ever, ever, ever been offered. Where was it? In China, and the way you eat them was to cut little X's in the pads and spoon out the pads. That's pretty disgusting. What does Martha Stewart do in the situation when you have something on plate I in front of you? I just said no thank you. I didn't insult or anything because that was a, a very, very big specialty was the pause of this particular place we went. And that, this is in 1982 in China. It's a very early trip for an American to be, you know, gallivanting around China, mainland China. Going back a few years again, I'm thinking of your, say, student times when you moved away and, and were concentrating on your studies. W- were there some dishes then that you still remember? That's when I first met my husband-to-be, and we ate in exotic places all the time. And I didn't move away. I always lived at home because I, li- I went to college right near my house. So I, I, I went to uh, Columbia University. And Columbia is right in New York, so we ate the most amazing food right there. Uh, all around Manhattan. Um, Chinese food was one of my favorite foods. It still is. And uh, I ate a lot of Chinese food in Chinatown, which had fantastic food. I'm meeting you at one of your one of your studio kitchens. Would this be the place where you would like to have your last meal? We're here? No. I don't want to have my last meal in my in my workplace. I want to have it in my most beautiful house in Maine. And I want Weizu-san cooking there. And I want the champagne maker there, too. Do we have P2? That's a really nice champagne. And the sake is very good sake. And what kind of a room, where exactly would it be at your home where this meal would take place? Oh, I have a beautiful, beautiful dining room that has the sun rises in the east, sets in the west, and uh, windows on three sides, and a great big raging fire in the fireplace. It's beautiful. That's That's a great place to have a last meal. It's heavenly. And then moving on to the next dish, it's not actually on the, di- on the table anymore, but I saw you. I was wondering why no one has told me that you can do that with a potato. Isn't it funny? Yeah. Just smashing but it that you way. See how, because fi- potatoes are total fiber inside. And you know when you cut into a baked potato, it's usually hard as a rock, when, even when it's cooked, you open it up and it's like two slabs. 
And it's not tasty that way when you bash it like that. And I learned that from a potato farmer um, way up in northern Maine. We went to his farm to learn all about the harvest of potatoes. And he baked me a potato, and it was like eating the best thing ever cooked that way. So is that the reason why you chose it? Because it was something... Cute? Oh, no, it's cute, but it's also delicious with caviar and creme fraiche. I mean, there's nothing more filling or more delicious than that especially if you have uh, unlimited sorts of caviar for your last supper. <laughs> and what happens then after, after that potato and caviar? <laughs> Look at that, Kevin. He's like very happy with his potato. That's our birthday potato. It's amazing. Yeah, you can have that. When you think of your, all your travels around Lisa's the world... Not, and not like that very much. When you think of the most memorable experiences with food, can you name one or two? You always remember like the best date you had with the best meal. And uh, that was at Lutece, actually, the old Lutece in New York. And that was a very fun, very fun meal and a very fun uh, date and a very fun evening. We had duck. I remember having the most delicious duck, Bigarard, with dark cherries. And I think something lemon, like a lemon souffle for dessert. It was, it was delicious. And I, I take it it was a good date because yeah, you remember it. was a very it. good date, yeah. That was a very good date. That was a fun date. <laughs> I love listening to the way you describe food and what inspires you about food. Do you ever find food boring? Oh, yeah. Yeah, bad food. Very boring. And I think it's unnecessary. But there's a lot of bad food. And uh, the other day I taught a class in Atlantic City... A delicious breakfast. We, we taught a, a popover, a Gruyere popover filled with homemade creamed spinach and a, um, a fried egg and really good bacon. And I made my plate. It was so pretty. And then the hotel that was helping us, the chef decided he would put a garnish of a strawberry on an orange slice on a piece of lettuce. And that's just not, that's boring to me. It's a dessert time now. What do we have over here? Oh, this is um, our dessert. Here, move that. We have hot fudge, which should be in a little hot pot, but and cold ice cream and a salty peanut brittle. So this is the hot fudge. And if the hot fudge doesn't solidify when it hits the ice cream, it's not hot fudge. And you need a lot of hot fudge. Everybody skimps on, either skimps on the hot fudge or uses like Hershey's syrup, which is not hot fudge. So that's enough hot fudge. And then I sort of like it with a dollop of whipped cream. And this is heavy cream. It's just dolloped on like that. And a piece of salty peanut brittle. That's so easy again. Look how good that looks. Doesn't it look good? You're licking your lips. Tom, your hypothetical last meal, would it be that massive ball of cheese again or what? (laughs) With donuts. If I keep eating donuts and cheese, it may literally be my last meal. I'm trying to turn over a new leaf, uh, Marcus, perhaps inspired by the fearsome way that you're stepping out, you know, chasing new uh, horizon, tilting at windmills. Uh, But it's it's a bit less exciting. I'm not entering the world of diplomacy. I'm entering the world of... uh, more restrained cholesterol. What does that mean in practice? Less carbs? No, I think carbs are okay. It's mainly the big villain in the piece is dairy. Ah, uh, you know, I have to say that the menu has inspired me to change my diet slightly. A few weeks ago, I interviewed this lady who had her own bean business, and she released this book that's all about bean recipes. And I've been 
preparing a lot of beans recently. Bean putanesca is is one thing that may sound a bit wrong, but I can highly recommend that recipe. I thought maybe you you decided to move on from Monocle when I referred to you as a has-been. When was that? Well, I thought that's what forced you over the the precipice. (laughs) Let's continue with with one more highlight, by the way. When I think about the most pleasant guests I've had in the programme over the years, you know, Jamie Oliver was obviously one of them, you know, a man with a massive status, you know, everyone knows him in the UK, Europe-wide, even internationally. And back in 2017, I interviewed him when he was launching his, his new restaurant. We caught about the premises of that new place. It was called Barbecue, this restaurant in London, Piccadilly. And, and when we were there, Jamie talked about what he had learned about restaurant business so far and what kind of tips he would now give to his younger self. And this is what he had to say. Sign every cheque that goes out of the business because you're going to get mugged. Get a really good board of non-exec directors that have actually done stuff. Never did that till recently, really. Honestly, like, don't get me wrong, I'm grateful and I've done some good work and, and created some amazing businesses, but I have made so many mistakes. All with goodwill and heart and soul and love, but I have just gloriously screwed up loads of stuff. And I think, you know, I think that's kind of partly me because that's my style. I think, like, I'm quite romantic about giving things a go. And, and if I'm being philosophical and not crying about sort of various elements of failure I'll look at failures and see how little elements of that have now been evolved and plopped into other businesses and allowed to flourish in different ways but mate I don't know if I'm a good role model for business really I mean my business is really like a mini Disney you know how it operates how it's structured and of course 20 years ago it was just me on my Jack Jones you know I think my first employee was a girl that kind of relentlessly pestered me on Portobello Road Market who's still with me today who's kind of like my chief of staff. And that was 18 years ago when I used to work on Portobello Road Market selling fruit and veg. (laughs) When you follow food journalism, there is so much always talk about trends. What is it that's happening in the restaurant industry? And is it about French food or Peruvian food or Nordic food? Do you follow that? And do you feel like it somehow has an impact on what you do? On a personal note, not really. I kind of get it more from the suppliers and the chefs than the writers. It depends what kind of writer, really. I mean, if you're looking at food critics, it's quite cool to, like, just destroy me. So I'm not expecting great reviews. I mean, we got destroyed in Barbecue One. Absolutely destroyed. We had literally all of them come in in seven days on 50% off. I don't know about you, but, like, I was 35 years old, and in a recession when people weren't opening up, we were doing something optimistic and, and a kitchen like never before. So I'm kind of a bit of a target. So I'm, in a way, I sort of try to channel off because I feel like a bit of a target. It's really cool to slag off J.O. So Do you let that influence you? No, it just Do makes... Do you mind? Well, I've spent 20 years looking at what I or my businesses are bad at. That's what we focus on every day. We don't sit around patting ourselves on the back. But what it does is it makes me feel a little bit sad and a little bit dare I say it beaten when you know you're going to be reviewed and you know that they all have a view that's fine but more complex than that you know to spend three million quid at St Paul's to do something really unusual and a kitchen that hadn't been set up ever in Britain to employ 160 people and essentially get absolutely destroyed just left right and center in a kind of slightly pretentious way, I can rise above it because their reviews make no difference because we're fully booked and have been since. So it's not about kind of business. It's about, come on, guys. 
that was two years in the making, at least come after three weeks. But the thing is, they're all in a rush to get in. They all get points in getting the first review out. So in a way, ever since then, I've kind of... And with the kind of blogger-vlogger kind of foodie thing, which in a way is slightly more interesting and a little bit more fluid and they're more open. Since then, I've just had a really kind of slightly let-down relationship to that moment in time I just felt as if I'd been taken advantage of a little bit and it wasn't about getting dissed the recession for me was kind of like in the middle of it back when we did number one it was like do you close up and kind of pull back or do you go forward and fight it and for me I was doing the latter and I was proud to create jobs and create business but I don't really listen to them to be honest and I try not to take any advice from them either (laughs) That was Jamie Oliver speaking to me some years ago. And it's amazing, actually. There's great footage. If listeners uh, can find it, get on the old YouTube and you'll be able to track it down, of Jamie's first appearance when he was a tyro, an upstart, a young pretender at the he River Cafe. He was such Cafe. a child when you see those this, this, photos and videos. This precocious kid, and he's in that famous kind of galley kitchen, that skinny space at the River Cafe. But what an amazing uh, proving ground and sort of finishing school for chefs. Obviously, Jamie, so many others under uh, Ruthie at the River Cafe. And uh, Marcus, I know eh, now and again, everyone works pretty hard here, but you've been known to wander a little bit west, down by the river. Mm -hmm. Maybe enjoy a bit of River Cafe hospitality. It's an amazing spot, and you can kind of taste with every plate. Simple classics reimagined. Just just everything done with real thought and love. Uh, You can see why that has always resonated with Mm -hmm. with Tyler and the Monocle Absolutely. Obviously, River Cafe was ranked the best restaurant in Monocle's restaurant awards once or twice, and I have to say it's one of my personal favourites in London as well. Talking about favourites, what's also interesting is that when you've been working for Monocle for this long, you get to know places. You know, obviously you get to know places like Riva Cafe, but then you get to know some cities because you end up going there again and again and again. And I think Zurich is one of those places where we obviously have a big presence. We have a radio studio there. We do Monocle on Sunday, for example, from there regularly. And it's one of these places that it's just a place Monocle really enjoys. And, and I've grown to like it very much as well. And another person who obviously very much likes Zurich as well is our own Emma Nelson, And just a couple of years ago, she went to Zurich and tried to track the roots of Muesli, how that king of breakfast was born. And this is what she came up with. It's the ultimate example of the healing power of Swiss nature. In the children's novel Heidi, the wheelchair-bound Clara is sent to the mountains for a wholesome diet and gulps of fresh air. By the time she's back in the city, she can walk. Today, the biggest health export from Switzerland's slopes is arguably a little breakfast of oats, apple and nuts. But for starters, we need to work out how to pronounce this revolutionary little bowl of goodies. The German version of pronouncing it is muesli, but this in Switzerland means a little mouse. In Switzerland, they pronounce it muesli, which means it's a little mush. And the breakfast dish we're here to talk about? It's called in High German Birchermüsli and in Swiss German Birchermüsli. That's Dr. Eberhard Wolf from Zurich University, the man fondly considered to be Switzerland's leading brain on breakfast. We'll hear more from him later, but first let's head up and out on a cold, thick Zurich afternoon to what is now a smart, modern business retreat 
on what's known as the Zauberberger, or Magic Mountain, to see where it all started. It's a good job I've had my bowl of birch and muesli before starting out. The place I'm trying to get to is called Lebendigerkraft, and it's a 40-minute walk uphill out of the centre of Zurich. It's now home to the Zurich Development Centre, a sort of private hotel for employees of the insurance company. But it is here, a hundred years ago, where that little bowl of grated apple and oats and some hazelnuts changed the world's breakfasts. The Lebendigerkraft, which means living power or energy, was a sumptuous haven for the ultra-rich in need of sorting out. It was a project of a doctor and pioneering nutritionist, Max Becher-Benner. Outside here in the Swiss chill, you see all the beautiful green shuttered chalets where all the aristocrats with terrible complaints would come and get their cure from Dr. Becher-Benner. And the cures were pretty extreme. There were body wraps. At the beginning of each stay, each patient was given a booklet with regulations and a precise timetable. And electrotherapy promised to give tired, nervous and overworked patients better blood circulation. In 1906, the writer Thomas Mann, famous for work such as Death in Venice, was treated at the sanatorium and he hated it, calling it a hygienic penitentiary. But a month of early rises and early bedtimes, plus Dr. Becher-Benner's diet of raw food, worked wonders on the author's insides. Today there's no barefoot dancing on the lawn, but the ideas born here can still be seen. The walls of the kitchen have posters of nuts and seeds on them. Dr. Becher-Benner himself stares down from a giant picture on the guests in the dining room. And tucked away and beautifully hidden is his office – and it's among the warm wood panels and display cabinets full of weird and wonderful pieces from the archive that I've come to meet Kevin Fensker. He's the head chef here. So we've got the grater they would use for the apples, for the Becher muesli. Then we've got some pictures of them cooking in the kitchens. We've got some of the weird things they would do to people to improve their health. What can we see that's happening here? I mean, there's a gentleman over there that seems to have been wrapped in something. Yeah, and there's not really any explanation for it, but he seems to be quite comfortable. And what's happening over there? That looks like someone's having a wire attached to his head. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's electricity involved. Kevin then does the decent thing and makes me a bowl of muesli on the very spot where it may well have been dreamed up. So we've got rolled oats, and then what you need to do is you need to soak them for 12 hours. What's the purpose of soaking the oats? What does it do? Like I say, I think it's to do with softening it so it's easier to digest. I need to go and get a spoon now, didn't I? Uh, <laughs> okay. So we would start with the oats. So here we have two tablespoons of rolled oats, which have been soaked in water. Then we have hazelnuts, which we ground up. And we add two tablespoons of ground hazelnuts. Quite a lot of hazelnuts. Then we have the honey. Would you add half a teaspoon? And half a teaspoon of condensed milk. And so then what we, happens? So we take three apples, skin and seeds. You take the whole apple? Yeah. 
Okay, now that, I think some people might be quite surprised by that. Yeah, I mean, you know that the seeds of apples contain small amounts of cyanide, but I think it's not a problem. I'm not sure if they knew about it at the time, but the original recipe is with the seeds. Maybe just a bit of roughage, maybe adding to the, the fibre. Dare I suggest that muesli is not something that lacks roughage? <laughs> yes, no, you're right. Apple two going in. May I say, Kevin, I've never seen anyone great at that speed. <laughs> I'm pretty great at it. So now we have oats, hazelnuts, honey and condensed milk. And we're just going to put a little bit of lemon juice. And that's just to stop it going brown, but also a little bit of flavour. So great, puffed out after doing all those apples. <laughs> and we just give it a mix. Normally when you think of birch muesli, you think of a tonne of oats and then you add fruit and then you soak it. Yeah, but, but this is the other way around, isn't it? Yeah, there's not actually that much oats in it. It's mostly apple and it's almost equal quantities of hazelnut to oats. And what does it taste like? Would you like to try some? Oh, go on then. <laughs> here you come with the spoon and the bowls. The most important bit. Okay, here we go. What are we doing? Oh, they're tiny, Kevin. That's not fair. <laughs> Sorry. So... If you'd like to... I'd love to. Right. Okay. How often do you eat it? At least twice a week. Really? Really. <laughs> when I get a chance. It's a lot of apple. I must confess, it tastes nothing like birch muesli. Mm. It tastes like grated apple with a lot of hazelnuts. And the oats just seem to be a bit of an afterthought that you have to think about when it comes to chewing. But apart from that, this is more, I'd say, akin to baby food than the stuff <laughs> that we would have nowadays in the shops. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the highlight of the day from what everything else they were doing. The bowl of virtue muesli would set you up for goodness knows what on the ground. Yeah, no, I think this is definitely going to help you do your gymnastics and croquet. So that's the original. A lot of apple, a little oat and condensed milk, which, by the way, was a safe method of consuming dairy products at a time when there was a risk of tuberculosis. There are no dollops of yoghurt, no raisins and certainly no forest fruits. It fitted in with Dr. Bercherbenner's frugal dietary regime and as Dr. Eberhardt Wolf now explains, it caused quite the scandal. At that time, medical profession thought what he was saying wasn't academic medicine. It was an idea, it was a sort of a hobby, but it was not meant to be healthy and not professional medicine. There's also the idea of the romance of mountain food, isn't there? I mean, how connected to this is what happened with Dr. Birchebenner and then subsequently what's happened to us as well as breakfast eaters? This is part of the myth of invention Birchebenner covered the muesli with. He told the story, he got the idea from mountain peasants, but it doesn't make absolute sense. But it fitted, it fitted to sell the idea because there was a widespread idea of the mountains being the place for a healthy life at that time. And who bought it? The British. They were the first ones coming to Switzerland as tourists and contributed to make these the identity of Switzerland as not just being a place for holidays, but being a place to find health, especially among the British tourists. The mountains were seen as a place where you can get health. And this is why the idea of the Heidi story was so popular. And so Muesli and the Heidi story are to some extent connected. I spot Dr. Wolf has a postcard of Heidi on his office wall. 
He explains why he believes Switzerland as a nation has gone on to have such a huge impact on our breakfasts. Switzerland has, with muesli, made an intense impact on world breakfast. How did it come that muesli got international? I have a suspicion, the suspicion it might have been the Mervyn Peak hotel chain that spread all over the world and offered it at their breakfast buffet. And I guess this might have been one of the reasons making muesli international. There's one last thing. We've all been eating this stuff at the wrong time of day. Not for breakfast, not for breakfast. And even more for Bilger Benner himself, muesli was an hors d'oeuvre. He said it has to be eaten before the main dish. So it changed from a health food hors d'oeuvre to a Swiss supper and then changed to the identity we all know right now to breakfast. And at the same time, it's a typical food for people practicing sports. And muesli even has a lot of more identities. And it's old people's food as well, you say? I once heard the rumor Bircher Benner has invented the muesli with a grated apple because he didn't have any teeth anymore. And he was looking for something that is easily to chew. So from the top of a mountain to a key export of Swiss hospitality and hotel buffet staple. The glorious thing about Dr. Berkebener's invention is that it has become all breakfasts to all people. But it will forever remain something resolutely Swiss. For Monocle in Zurich, I'm Emma Nelson. Thanks to Emma Nelson for that report. Such such an interesting story, how, how Muesli was born in Zurich. Tom, we've been talking about the past, and I think this is the moment to talk about the future of this programme. And now the question everyone is asking, who can replace me? <laughs> uh, you set me right up there, Marcus. Obviously, the answer is nobody. However, what I would say is... Uh, the kind of values that you've brought to bear on our coverage of, of food and drink and of the hospitality sector, um, those things will be unchanging. So whilst the show will indisputably sound very different in the post-Marco Sippi era, uh, I think the kinds of stories we want to tell, uh, the kind of places we want to go, the people we want to meet, and the enthusiasm with which we want to tackle the subject matter, uh, that will not be shifting at all. So if there are people out there who want to contribute stories, if you know a great food brand, if you've got a restaurant that you feel passionate about, um, do still get in touch uh, to the team. As our regular listeners, readers of the magazine will know, all of our uh, contact details are on the masthead of the mag every month so you can get in touch with us. Um, and we still want to hear about these stories we want to tell and we want to cast that spotlight. And I can guarantee our listeners, Marcus, even if they may not have Marcus Hippie or even Marcus Hippie Mark II, mm -hmm. they will have uh, lots of stories which are about optimism, uh, opportunity in the sector, um, and we'll be spreading lots of, of sunshine uh, with every, you know, the clattering of knives and forks on plates, the clinking of, of glasses. Wherever we go, we'll be spreading the same sunshine that despite your 
Nordic strangeness oh. you've brought to the menu over the last few years. Thank you very much for this past year's Tom, and thank you very much our listeners. It's been a great pleasure doing this programme for so long, and I hope to be back on Monocle Radio soon with some kind of an excuse. And whilst everyone is waiting for the many to come back from a quick break, you can obviously listen to Food Neighbourhoods, where we tour some of the world's most exciting food and drink destinations. And of course, we have many reports on great hospitality in the magazine side as well, so get a copy of the latest edition of the magazine. I am Markus Hippi. This programme was researched by Monica Lillis and our studio engineers were David Stevens and Kelly McLean. And once again, we finished this programme with a Dinner Sounds recommendation. And Tom, when I think about all these past years, I think there's one track that just won't ever leave my head. And that is Candid Alpha, In or Out. Let's have a listen. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>